My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors, and we have a text this morning from the book of Acts, chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, uh, someone will hand you one. Otherwise, if you'll turn to Acts, chapter 14, verse 1. Scriptures will also be on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, at Iconium, they entered, that is Paul and Barnabas, entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker and the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowd. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I, uh, I don't feel like I should be preaching this sermon. Have you ever felt that way? Like someone asks you to, uh, to talk about something or to, or to share a little bit of your experience and you realize in that moment the magnitude of the gap between what what you know you want to be true about you and what is actually true. That, that there's this huge space between, and, and the longer I've spent time in this passage this week, the further the gap seems to have become. This morning, I am recognizing the magnitude of the gap between my areas of faith and practice and what I see emerge out of this text, and, and maybe you did too, and maybe you will too. And so this morning, what I want to invite you into is to let me preach to myself, at least some of y'all can listen in if you want. But um, there is a deep longing in, in my soul that, that seems to always be escaping. I told Joel this morning, I think I expected my heart to be further along after having been in Acts so long. I, I expected, having gone through the process of seeing the gospel move forward, that I would want to see the gospel move forward more. And, 
And, and I recognize there's still this massive gap in, in my areas of faith and, and practice. And, and maybe you see that yourself. So I'm asking God, uh, not just that I want to see myself more alive, that I want to see more change in me, that I want to see more change in us, but, but that I want to want even. You ever had to pray that? Like, you know you should want, but, but you actually don't even want to want, so you need to pray that you would want to want. Here's the good news. I mean, there's going to be lots of good news. But the good news is, it's actually not up to me, which is good news. We've, we've said we have a joke now because of the stupid thing I said a few weeks ago that, uh, that God does all the work. If you were here, and I said, and God does most of the work. And then Steve Heimler, in his gentle way, came up and said, really, we're a church where God does most of the work. That's good news. Uh, no, so God does all the work. Um, that is a fact. That's actually proper theology. Um, but uh, it's, so it's, it's, not, it's not up to me. I, I'm realizing, and I've had to tell myself this in other contexts as well, that it, it, it can't be about the magnitude of the change that God is doing or has done in me to make things true. The good news is that the power is in the word. It is true. It stands on its own. And only the Holy Spirit's going to be able to apply it to our hearts and to make us the kinds of people that we're longing or longing to long to be. So that's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for us. That's my prayer for myself. So this morning, uh, I believe that through this passage, the Holy Spirit is going to be calling us. He's going to be inviting us. He's going to be calling me. He's going to be inviting me into three things. One, he invites us to present a nimble message of the gospel. He invites us to expect a divided reaction to the gospel. And he invites us to long for a heart shaped by the gospel. He invites us to present a nimble message of the gospel, to, to expect division, uh, divided reaction to the gospel, and to long for a heart shaped by the gospel. So, to present a nimble message of the gospel. One of the things we see in this passage, it starts right away in, um, in verse 1, is that there's verse 1 and verse 8 are highly contrasted. You kind of have two moments, right? You have two cities. We have Iconia and we have Lystra, two very different places. And we see the first thing that happens is we see Paul and Barnabas go and do what they pretty much have always done. And that is they go to the synagogue first. They go and they enter the synagogue. And this is basically kind of like the, the church plants of the Jewish faith during the diaspora, during the scattering of the Jews. And so they enter there. And the typical practice was for those who were leading the, the synagogue, the ruler of the synagogue, to allow traveling folks who are rabbis or teachers like Paul was uh, to come and to basically be the speaker, the teacher. And the elders would say, amen, yes, this is good or this is not good. Um, and that's what happens. And, and what we see here is, is something I think that's really important for us. And this was encouraging to me along, along the way. And that is that Paul and Barnabas begin by going to the place that already had an open door. They, they start by walking into an environment that, is, that is already has a, a gaping spot for them to step into and to talk about the things that matter, that are significant, to be able to share the gospel in a place where it's already open, where the door has already been opened been cracked. And it seems to me that that's one of the most helpful and encouraging applications is that we, as we look at what we should do with the gospel, with, with this beautiful good news is that we should take it and go to the places that, well, the door is already open. I, I don't know about you, but in the eighties, there was like this, there was different kinds of movements about evangelism. And one of those, I remember one of those ideas was like, Hey, gather all your high school friends. Actually, it wasn't a high school. I, but anyway, I'll gather all your high school friends together. Maybe early 90s too. Josh McDowell, you know, that thing. Uh, gather all your friends together and like um, halfway through the evening party, like throw on the Jesus movie and like kind of do an unexpected kind of bait and switch thing. And next thing you know, you're having an evangelism moment. And you guys have that moment. Do you remember when it was like, that's how you do evangelism. That's how you share the gospel. And I was like, I'm not doing that. 
And some people did, and I was like, more power too. But I, I wasn't going to do that. And, and, and so it felt like the idea of, of, of presenting the gospel must take place in some kind of thing that you have to create, that you have to manufacture, that you have to like, that you have to do it. It has to be in a place that it isn't already in any way, shape, or form. And, and what we see here, and what we see actually in the, this is one of the beautiful things about looking at the history of how God prepared the movement of the gospel, is that God had already scattered synagogues across the known world. Some of the persecution that had taken place in the Jews had prepared a place, a soft, open-door place for the gospel to land. And what God's inviting us into in this reality is, is where in your world, where in your life is there an already an open door? What are the people that you know that, that are connected already to somewhat of the message or, or the uninterest in or are going through a really difficult time? What does it look like on a Monday morning to, because you already, always talk with your neighbor or in your, with your cube neighbor about what's taking place, took place over the weekend. Hey, so what'd you do? Because we don't know how to have conversations, right? It's like, what'd you do this weekend? Because they know what you did all week long. You were with them. Um, but you, you, you get to have an opportunity to, to talk maybe a little bit more intentionally about what the weekend looked like. Maybe you can talk about how amazing the sermon was on Sunday. And, um, or just something significant you got to do with your community group, but you start seasoning the open doors, the environments that are already there with, with the gospel, with something, with a, with a question about the beauty, the beauty of Christ. Where are our open doors? I know in conversations with Renee, you've told me several times about you find yourself finding moments to just pray sometimes with clients. And it's a tricky thing, trying to figure out when that's the right case and the right moment. But, but seizing those moments that just, the door just opens for you and you step into it, you step through it. Teachers may be creatively introducing themes of redemption. What, what are your open doors? Where, where, are the, where are the synagogues in your environment? Because I believe they must be there. That's the question, one of the questions I'm asking myself. One of the other ways in which we have this this nimble message of the gospel being presented is that we have two, as I said, we have two different environments. We have the synagogue environment, and then in Lystra, you have Paul and Barnabas walking in, there's no synagogue. And so they end up, it's probably in the city market, which is where this beggar would be, because that's where most people are trafficking and walking, and, and they share a totally different message. In the synagogue, they would have shared probably more with Art shared last week, the, the passage reflecting the reality of the history of Israel, Abraham, and Moses, and, and how God had brought about redemption through the people of God, through the, through the Jews, and he would have gone that route in the synagogue. But here, what does he do? He shares a totally different kind of message. He says, I don't know if you realize this, but God's been good to you. He's actually been pouring out blessings on you. He's been, you, there's a good God, and and. and and I have good news for you. He's actually been caring for you. You haven't even known him. It's, it's pretty special because these are, all, these are all pagans. These are people that are worshiping a little bit of everything. Zeus and all the, all the different gods who will do anything they can for them. And he's saying, no, no, I have, I have better news for you. There's a good God who's been offering you good things. That there's a, there's a nimbleness to the message. That it's not always the same. That it shifts and that perhaps for us, when we're talking to someone with a religious background, we're, we're a little bit more of a synagogue presentation. If you talk to someone with a Muslim background, or that you want to go in a religious direction, you want to talk about righteousness and goodness, and how do you please God? And, and when you're talking to people who don't have any interest in anything spiritual or anything related to God, you get to talk about the, the goodness of God, the, the common grace of this God who has been providing them and seeking to satisfy them with good things that he may draw them to himself. I think the simple way of summarizing it is how it says in verse one, it says, they spoke in such a way 
Paul and Barnabas spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. I think if there's a portion of this passage that captured me the most, and it actually did so because Clark kept pounding it in my head, um, it's that. They spoke in such a way that, that evidently there is a way, there is a certain way and probably ways in which the gospel is more readily believed, more accessibly engaged. And of course, the spirit is teaching them and, and they've been taught and trained as they're learning. You see, I think Art pointed out that the sermon that, that Paul shares in the synagogue is actually pretty similar to the sermon that Peter shared on day one, that there's some, they're training each other. They're learning how to engage the culture that they're in. And I think that's some of what we're being invited, some of what I'm being called into. Clark said to me, and I'm going to quote this, Clark, said this, uh, this reality that they spoke in such a way makes uh, a clear case seems to make a case for finding ways and tools that God is using to bring people to himself. I think what's one of the things you saw in the city, um, Clark and John are invited some folks to go to this training, this evangelism training that's happening this weekend. And it's one of the reasons why we had the, uh, the hearing people seeing Jesus, RZIM course is how do we equip ourselves to, to, to enter with, with a mind and a heart and with a, in such a way that, I want, I want to know that there is a, in such a way that, that the spirit is seeking to guide my soul into, my moments into. I think one of the things that, um, by implication that they spoke in such a way is that there's a, there's a way not to speak in such a way. And, and some of us are saying a lot of things, some of us on, some of us on social media, uh, we're saying a lot of things, but we're not speaking in such a way that would actually draw people and move people towards this God that we know. Whether it's in hate vitriol or political anger or whatever, we're, the message we're putting out there is not speaking in such a way that, and this passage is inviting us to say there's a way that, there are ways that, how do we move towards those? First Corinthians 9 is kind of the the landing passage for this, when Paul's talking about how he's been doing this life of the gospel. He says, for to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. It was that last verse there. As Paul's talking about, there's ways. You don't talk to everybody the same. You don't engage people in the same. You listen, you hear, you enter. There's, a, there's an incarnational dynamic to bringing the good news. And that's what he's talking about in that passage. But did you catch that last verse? This is the verse that made me go, I'm, I'm missing out here. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that there is this good news and, and I want to participate in it. But listen to what Paul says, that I may share with them in its blessings. I think I said this before a few months ago. Like, I want to know that blessing. I want to know those blessings. I, I feel like there is, a, there is a richness to be experienced, to be engaged, to be entered, to be participating in that I, I know little of. 
that I, I long for us to know more of. I long for you to know more of. I, I, I want to be encouraged by you knowing more of it. I want to be changed by you knowing more of it. Well, one of the other things we see in this passage and how I present this nimble message is, is the reality that they didn't just speak in such a way, but they also acted in such a way. Verse 3 says, talks about the actions of grace are coupled with the words of grace. Verse 3 says, so they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the grace, to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Back to our initial comment. Who's doing the work? In that verse, who's doing the work? The verse says, and they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. This is an echo of what Art was pointing out. The work is being done by God. This is Jesus continuing to do his work amongst his people by his power through his, through his people. Like, like Jesus is doing the work. He's the one bearing witness. He's the one granting miracles and signs and wonders. And there, um, there are times when, when Christ doing the work of bearing witness and of, um, of, of making signs and wonders happen is extraordinary. They're extraordinary happenings. And, and that's what happens with Paul and Barnabas, right? They're in this situation. And next thing you know, they're having opportunity to use signs and wonders and to have a crippled man who never walked before stand up. And we don't, as Mike's pointed out in a couple of his sermons, we don't, we don't see that a, a ton. But there are extraordinary moments. There are things where God is, God is evidently trying to make all things happen and we have no say in it. All we can go is like, what in the world? I have a, a friend of ours. Uh, her name is Chris. She's one of my wife's best friends. We, we met them in, in Omaha, Nebraska. And we came to be connected with Chris and her husband, Jet, in the midst of them, um, while we're in the military, in the midst of them separating and eventually divorcing. And through that process of suffering and struggle, uh, Chris came to know Jesus. And um, her husband, Jet, moved down to Oklahoma City from Omaha. And, and so he was kind of coming up sometimes to see the kids. And, and as Chris became more and more alive to Jesus, he, he started getting more and more curious, uncomfortable, not sure. He, he didn't recognize her, candidly. There had been so much shift in what was important to her. And, and after one particular time that he'd been up and uh, he thought, we invited him to our community group, and um, he thought we were going to like lay hands on him and sing Kumbaya, which is just an interesting dynamic of like Kumbaya, of course, being a Christian song. I don't know where that came from. Anyway, so we always joked about we're going to lay hands and sing Kumbaya. But they, he'd said, hey, listen, I don't know what's going on with you, but there's something about it that I'm interested in that I want. And Chris took that moment and she said, well, can I pray for you? He was walking out the door to drive back to Oklahoma City and she said, can I pray for you? And so they prayed and she prayed. She said, God, would you, would you show him yourself? I don't know what that means, but would you give him the opportunity to see you? He seems like he might be curious. Could you do that? And on his drive from Omaha to Oklahoma City, which is about a six and a half hour drive, uh, his car overheated about halfway down. And he's stuck in some cornfield in the middle of, uh, in the middle of uh, Kansas. And uh, he literally, literally like over, you know, heats, poof, it blows. And he kind of slowly starts rolling down. He, he rolls to the side and in front of him, literally standing in front of him is, a, is a, one of those flag people, a flag woman. And so she walks up to his, to his door with her flag and is like, well, Looks like God sent you to me today, sent me to you today. Um, and, and, and sure enough, she says, um, I, let, me, let me call for some help. And so she called and, and got, got a tow truck to come, come and help him. But as they're sitting there, she looks at him and goes, 
I don't know, but it seems like maybe God sent me to you for another reason. Like, do you know Jesus? And she shares the gospel with him right there as he's stuck on the side. That's called a captive audience. (laughs) You can't go anywhere. And uh, he was so surprised and so blown away. He got back down. The first thing he did was get there. He picked up the phone and called Chris and said, you wouldn't believe what happened today. That that I pulled up to this woman who said, oh, I'm here for, for God, for you. Oh, and I have good news for you in case you're wondering what it'll look like. Uh, within two weeks, Jet had gotten in touch. We found out, again, because this is what God does, that uh, the, our pastor in Omaha, his brother had a, past, had a church in Oklahoma City. And so within two weeks, Jed is starting to go to this church. Now, he told me, he said, it actually took me two weeks because the first time I went up to the doors, I was like, no, 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 and he left. <laughs> but God wasn't done. He, was, he had prepared a way. He was doing extraordinary things, and, and that's the signs and wonders stuff. I mean, God's in charge of radiators and cars. You do know that, right? And he prepared. He'd done something extraordinary. But the bottom line for us is most of the time, it's the ordinary means of grace. It's the ways in which we're curious towards other people. It's the ways in which the, 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 the signs and wonders are the fact that you're an alive person. That you're someone who, who's not primarily about yourself. Someone who lear- who's learned to forgive the unforgivable in others. You're someone who's learning to give yourself away in hospitality and in service, that you care about things that aren't about you, that you seem to, to lose and not care. It doesn't, it doesn't define you. That, that, that your money is not the, the most important thing, that you're not grounded, by, grounded into the ground by your work and your possessions aren't the things that possess you, that there's something about you. There's an ordinary means, there's a sign and wonder that's being declared as you, as you adorn, as you ornate the gospel with your life, with your deeds. So there's these actions that go along with this great story of of the gospel. And that's precisely what we see, that they are adorning the gospel, this word of grace. And that's really what we have, right? Kevin DeYoung says, fundamentally, what we have to offer is a word of grace. Grace to know the one true God, grace to be forgiven and justified, grace to have eternal life. This is the, I'm sorry, this is in its essence, what we hold and sing and long for, a God who loves us, and a God who sent his son. Perhaps the uh, second most convicting thing that struck me was a couple weeks ago when uh, we're having a meeting with a couple of folks working on the sermon and Ivy, Ivy Tyson, who's not here today, was there. And she, um, she, she made this comment, this statement, and she's saying it like at large, like the kind of things that the preacher should say to its people. But as she said it, I was immediately like, oh, that's me. And she said, um, I'm, I wrote it down. She says, she said, I guess I'm feeling that if, if I'm having no avenues or opportunities, am I participating in the very first step? Am I, am I, am I participating in the preparation of my heart? And am I uh, participating in the preparation of my mind through prayer? Am I doing any of the tilling ground? We talked about this a little bit in the past. And, um, and the bottom line is the answer was no. No, I, I'm, I'm not saying that I'm not... I'm not looking for God because I, I do want to see him work, but am I preparing my heart? No, I'm not. And one of the things that, that, that struck me is like, I do everything that's on my calendar. I don't know about you. I mean, not everything. You know, there are things like take out the trash that sometimes I don't do, but, but by and large, I do everything that's on my calendar. And so this week I realized um, if I am not in a posture of preparation, I will be making these same declarations, these same comments. I'm going to be inviting you into the same thing that I'm struggling with because it's not true of me yet. And so uh, one of the things, and Mike and I have talked about this before, of 
So, so but from now until we, until we take a step into our new space, one of the things I've done is at nine o'clock on every single day, including this morning, I have a little reminder on my phone that says, like, pray for opportunity. I, I, and, and this is what I know, is that what I, what I pray into, God opens my eyes to. And that's what I'm asking. I just want to ask asking him to see. Like, I want to see him at work. I want to see him moving. I want to see the opportunities that he's bringing to me that I would otherwise would not see. I don't want to be distracted by all the things that I think I have to get done and that the inconvenience of people coming into my world because it's always what it's going to be, right? I'm not going to schedule a meeting with someone to say, hey, have you heard about Jesus? That's probably not going to happen, right? It's going to happen upon me, right? It's going to happen upon you. It's going to enter your world unannounced and probably potentially unwanted. It's the person who always comes to your office that you're like, I don't want to talk to you. Please leave me alone. That's what I want to be attuned to. I want to, I want to see that, that, that moment. I don't have time to go into it, but that moment where it says that Paul looked intently at him. He looked intently at the beggar. That's like a whole sermon in of itself, but like bought eyes to see. He's looking for people who have faith or even, even the, the mustard seed that Joel talked about. Just this little bit. Is there, is there a crack? Is there an avenue that the, this great news can come in, can break in? Well, I'm praying at 9 a.m., if you want to put something on your calendar to pray at 9 or 10 or whatever, I'd love to have people join me. I'd love to see. And what I'm asking God is between now and the day we open the doors at our new space, because I'm combining those two things, because I feel like there's a movement of, our, of what it's going to look like for us to be the kinds of people who tell people about Jesus in a new space, that between those two times, I want to see what, what, what God does. So I'll, I'll report back. I'm probably not going to report much, but I'd like to report back and see what does it mean to see and to step in when God opens those doors. And I, if you want to join me, I'd love to have you join me. So we're called to present this nimble message that alters and varies that we must prepare ourselves for and be prepared in. But we also must expect a divided reaction to the gospel, a divided reaction to the gospel. We see in verse four, but the people of the city were divided. This is the Greek uh, schizo, schizophrenic, schism, all those kinds of schizo words. Really good, like um, Scrabble word, really good one. Um, but, but, but it just means two parts, right? Broken into two parts and that there's these, there's people, and this is what you see consistently throughout the book of Acts. We've seen it several times already, right? That the gospel is presented and some people believe and they're like, this is amazing, I'm changed. And some people push back. They fight, they argue, they persecute. There's, there's a division that the, that the gospel breaks apart, that it divides. And, and let me just say this. It's um, like Jesus divides. There's, you know, there's this book that was written a few years ago called The People, They, they Like Jesus But Not the Church, you know? And, and, there, and, and there's a reason for that. Um, and, um, but but, if, but if, you, if you read all of Jesus, there's some things about Jesus that should make us uncomfortable. It should make everyone uncomfortable that Jesus says, like, just so we're clear, I'm a divider. Like, I divide people. I divide people because of who I am, because of what I'm about, because of the implications of the message that I'm coming and the implications of who I am. It says in Luke chapter 12, he says, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? And you're like, peace on earth? That's like Christmas. Yes, that's why you came, right? He says, no. I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. It goes on talking about, about fathers being against sons and sons against fathers, mothers against daughters. And then it talks about in-laws, which they're always divided against each other. So that's just a normal thing. But 
But that there's division that when Jesus comes, that Jesus comes in, if he's taken seriously at who he is, he, he brings division. The gospel will divide. It will parse. It will separate. The message of, of Jesus that is preached by Paul divided the people. It divided the Jews, divided the Gentiles. And ultimately, the, the gospel divides every culture. For different reasons, by the way, which in Eastern culture, the gospel will affect and, and, and engage it and, and divide it for reasons that it's not true in the West, but it does divide. And so one of the things I was curious about is, um, what, what do you think are some of the, the fundamental aspects of the gospel? Some of the, the key tenets of the gospel that, that would divide here in Roswell or North Atlanta or your neighbor or your, your coworker? Give me a couple. Class participation. What's that? Treasures. Treasures. We're going to use just one word at a time. <laughs> Treasures. What else? What's other elements of the gospel? Key aspects, tenets of the gospel that are going to divide? Humility. Need for humility. Okay. Jesus is the only way. Yeah, that, that'll do it. What was this? Saved by works. Saved by works. Absolutely. Anything else? Exclusive, right? Not tolerant. There's a real and coming judgment. That, that, that'll divide. That your body's not your own. That your identity, your sexuality, your freedom are to be expressed only in the context that God has designed them to thrive in. And it's not yours to determine that. That all that you have is a gift. Treasures. The kingdom of God is not a meritocracy, that all is grace indeed. That we exist, not for our glory, but for the glory of God alone. Our very existence is not for us, it's for someone else. That it's not his job to exist on our behalf for our comfort. That everyone is worshiping, everyone is worshiping, whether you think you are or not. But that the living God is the one who's being invited to worship in the gospel. So the gospel will divide. And um, it leaves us with a, a couple of, of key questions. First Corinthians, I'm sorry, Second Corinthians 2, Paul, Paul acknowledges this. He says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere, which is just an awesome picture. That's its own thought. So he, he, through, through us, spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one fragrance from death to death, to the other fragrance from life to life. The gospel divides. And it's not, and when it divides, it is not an indication of failure. Something that we have to come to grips for is that, though, is that, that if there is going to be division, it should be division because of Jesus. It sh should be the gospel that divides, right? Not you and me. Not you and me. But it should be the gospel that, that divides us. As I quoted a minute ago, but Kevin DeYoung drew out two dangers for the church that for us as believers, when we experience divided reactions by people, when, when we experience, when the message gets rejected, here are kind of the two camps that we tend to go into. We either go into um, the abandon the message, abandon, jettison it all. I, clearly, 
clearly it's not working. Look at all the people who are against this. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not having effect. No one wants this. It's, it's so unpopular. It, I mean, come on. Like, shouldn't we just, didn't Jesus speak love? Like, we shouldn't judge one another. Like, it's not working. And so let's just alter the message. Let's edit it so that it fits better. It's a little less divisive. Isn't that what God would want? So there's that. There's the ignoring of the, of the message and, and, and the ignoring of the practice. And then on the other side, there's... Um, they're, they're stirring up the fight. There's, there's picking fights with as many people as possible or, or losing the ability to be self-critical about whether or not standing on a corner with a bullhorn, with a message about hate to people is the best way. That we're not, not willing to, to be critical about that. Is, is this actually a good way, a good method to be able to declare the, the beauty of God? We, we stop reflecting on whether or not it's the right way. And most significantly, and probably unfortunately what is too well known within the church is we develop an attitude of anger and and bitterness for the very lost world of the very lost people that God's actually sending us to. Kind of a, listen, you hate me, then I hate you. You're coming after me, then I'm coming after you. You won't support me, then I won't support you. You won't be for me, then I promise I will not be for you. There will be divided reactions within the gospel, reactions to the gospel. We should expect it and we shouldn't be surprised by it. But it should be the gospel that is opposed. How? How are we going to be the kinds of people who, when the gospel is opposed, who with a light heart are going to step in creatively to the, to the very lives and environments that God has opened doors to or is going to open doors to? How do we become those kinds of people? How do we continue to endure? It says in, in verse 3 that they, they persevere. They become the persevering kind of people where in verse 3 it says they, um, they remained for a long time. Did you see what it said in verse 2? So they stirred up poison against them. Next, and literally the phrase right after that is, and so they remained a long time. A persevering kind of people, a people who will, who will remain and understand there is a long story in people's lives. That when there is rejection and oppression, when there's division born out of the gospel, that there's a long story being written in your family and the people who don't want to know about Jesus. The people who are opposed, people who are unkind. That there is a long story and that we must persevere Not only must we be people who persevere, we must be people who have a confident heart. This is, um, this is pretty significant. Something about as you, if, you, if you take a survey of Paul and Barnabas in particular in these, in these chapters 12, 13, and 14, um, that there's something about them that is really attuned. They're, 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 they're trafficking in the reality of the good news being good news. They seem to really believe that the gospel is good news, that, that, it, that it applies to them, that, they, that it matters. They're not, they're not swept away. They're not deluded in thinking that there's something better. It's one of the reasons why when, when they try to you know, offer sacrifice to them and, and try to say, you're, you're gods, which isn't that ironic right after Herod was like, you're a god. And he's like, yes, I am. And then he dies. That, Two chapters later, it's like, you're gods. And they're like, no, we're not. You know, there's a totally different reaction to it. Because they're not deluded in believing that that kind of worship is worth anything. They don't buy that the, worth, that the world has a better gig. 
I think I may have mentioned this before, but back when I was a youth pastor, parents would come to me when their kids were struggling, were like, you know, prodigals and were struggling with their faith or whatever. And, and one of the things that I remember having to come to, and this is a challenge, was to look and say, do we believe that the world offers a better thing? Does it offer a tempting thing, a desirable thing? Yes, it does. Does it offer a better thing? Will it actually satisfy? Will it do the work? Is it good news? Because loved ones, if we think it's better news out there, then, then like, what are we doing? But it's not. Now, that doesn't mean there's not temptation and we're not drawn into thinking it can be and that, well, if I just have this, of course we do. Of course, the world draws us in our flesh, longs for, of course. But it's not better news. And what we see here is the ability to, to waver this division, to, to, to walk through, to get, to get stoned and wake up the next day and go to the next town. And, and those kinds of like, how are you doing this? I mean, if you read these passages with integrity, you're like, how are you doing this? How are you not like, okay, this is clearly not working. There's got to be a better job for me back in Jerusalem. Like, there's got to be, like, there must be. But no, no, there's a, there's a sense of endurance of, of continued engagement because it, they, they actually believed it was good news. It's permeating everything about them. That's why Paul says things like, I, I decided to, to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. And that it, Christ, who is your life, actually meant like he is my life. That became more and more true of him. Again, we're not to worship Paul or Barnabas by any means, but, but there was something that was galvanizing them, and it was, this is good news. So that when they receive all the things that any of us would ever want, which is adulation, the opportunity for, for, for sacrifice or praise or probably wealth and riches, if they had just been like, yeah, Zeus and Hermes is who we are, it's what we came. You know, like If that was the thing, which isn't that what everyone's Facebook account is designed for, right? I mean, isn't that what it's for? We Look, at, I've created a universe where I am the center, and I'm awesome. I mean, it's... Which is what we want, right? So this is the moment. This is their moment, right? And in that moment, they're like, no. No, not only is it no, but like we have better news. We're, we're, we're and we're talking about this a second. We're, there's a humility about the two of them. There is no doubt about it. They're like, listen, you don't understand. We're just guys. We're, we're just people. We're just like you. And one of the dispositions of the heart one of the ways in which the gospel shapes our hearts so that we can be these kinds of people is that we don't, we don't think of ourselves as more than that, but we're also confident. We, we say, this is vain. They call it this vain, what do you call them? I can't remember. Them. They say, turn from these vain things to the living God. Vain actually means it's without effect. It's void. It's, it has no result. It's futile. It's useless. They they believed that it was useless. One of the things that I'm convinced that I struggle with, with saying, this is vain, is I don't think they're going to believe that it's vain. Right? If I'm talking to someone, especially you know, Joe on the street or the person whose car radiator blows up in front of me, you know, like I, I don't think I'm going to go there because I don't believe that they're there yet. That's, that's probably one of my great sins, right? It's like, I don't know that God's got him there yet. So I'm going to wait until later when he has done other, th you know? And, and I, don't, I, I don't believe that they believe that it's vain, that it actually has no power, that has no purpose. And, and that's the one thing out of this passage that I was like, I, 
I, I need, I, there's, there's some unbelief in me. And I, it's ironic is that for you all who have the spirit of God, like I'm like, if you ever sit with me, I'm like, oh, your life is falling apart. It's okay. Like God's going to do amazing things. Like it, I believe it fundamentally and truly, but for someone who doesn't know Jesus, I'm like, I don't, maybe it's better for you. I, I have a really hard, t- I don't believe. I have a hard time believing that. And I don't think I'm alone. It's good news. We're just men. We're just people, but we have good news. Heart shaped by the gospel protects us from the, from the pride of thinking that we're anything. It, it protects us from worshiping even Christian heroes whose feet are made of clay. I have books on my shelf from people who wrote books and are now fallen and are broken in their reputation and We are just men, and so we're humble. A heart shaped by the gospel provides compassion for enemies and extends grace to people that are struggling because we recognize that we are just the same. One of the things that um, that the gospel tells us is that that we're loved in spite of. Uh, Probably if you've been uh, connected to friends or they'll say like, yeah, but honestly, like Christians are such hypocrites. Anyone ever heard that? Yeah, but Christians are such hypocrites. And the answer to that, if you're ever wondering what you should answer to that is, you're right. We are. Like, none of us live up to what we believe. To quote J Street one more time, we are educated far beyond our obedience, right? We, we don't live up to the things we say we believe. And that's the good news is that you get to say that's great. Now, so you, you too can belong you know, like, because we're all hypocrites, right? We're, we all don't live up to the things that we say we believe, and, and, and neither, neither do we. And, and not only hypocrites in what we display, but it's, it's, it's worse, right? See, I think one of the things that we struggle with the most is, is that we don't humble ourselves enough. You come out and tear their clothes and say, we're just, we're just men. And I think one of the things we realize when someone says, hey, listen, Christians are hypocrites, is that you get to go and say, it's worse than you think. Not only are we hypocrites, but if you knew what, what the temptations and struggles and mess that go on in the people in this room, in this room, like, you'd be blown away. It's worse than you think. But we have better news. That's, that's what we get for, it's, it's, it's really rough. You're right, if I must be rescued and saved. That's what the gospel tells me. It humbles me to the ground, it, I mean, all the way down. I must be rescued, but we have better news. And, and the, the better news is, is that we've been rescued. That's the thing that Paul and Barnes get to come back to time and time again. And, and whatever context it is, and it's what we get invited to towards people, is that we have better news. And, and God, that we would believe it, please. That we would believe we have the best news. And that it, as it continues to seep into our hearts and opens up new doors and quadrants that we haven't let in yet, that we'd be made more alive. And that good news would manifest itself in it being given, given away to other people. One of the, the imagery that, that God gave me this week uh, relates to, to, the, to the communion table. It's a very special thing for me and in my walk with God and how God's used it. I, the table, I love that we get to invite you here every week. It's the great equalizer, right? Everyone is equal at the foot of the cross. Um, but the, the, the imagery that I had is um, because, you know, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock, right? He says it's the Christians and non-Christians. I stand at the door and knock, and whoever would hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in and I'll eat with them, and, and they'll eat with me. There's this, there's this motif in Scripture about meals, right? There's a 
another sermon about that, but there's this idea of meals, and this is one of the one that sits center in it, and, and that what we're inviting people into when we're inviting them into this good news is we're inviting them into a meal. We're inviting them to the, the connectivity that belongs at a table, and the, the image that came to me, this is the, one of the things that I'm, I have in my, what do I want to pray at 9 a.m., is, God, I want to invite people to this table. Like, I, I want more people around the table. I want people who, who, who don't know the fact that this is the best news. Like, it's the best thing you're going to do all day. Frankly, it's the best thing you're going to do all week. Like, you're going to come and be reminded without a shadow of a doubt that you undeserving all the way at the bottom have received grace. That you've, you've been washed over by good news and it is well with your soul. And that's the thing we get to give away. And that's the meal that we're wanting to invite people into. And, and it must sink deep into our souls. It must be alive and true in us if we're ever going to invite people to it. And so that's what I would ask you. As you come forward and receive the elements, the body of Christ broken for you, his blood shed for you, as, as that washes over you, that you would ask on, that they would become so vivified in you that, that the longing would turn into you longing for other people to be standing in front and behind you. That's the imagery that I need. I, ne I need to have a visual of what it means to why am I going to take the risks. And that, like that's a vision I can think about. Like that, that feels like, that feels like the very thing that this table is about. Someone coming and giving themselves up so that others may eat. And so we get to eat together. And that's what we get to remind each other of, by the way, is that, and we belong to him because of this. So let me pray. Father, you do all the work. And my goodness, do we need you to do deep work in us. I, I recognize that I don't even know the half of it. And so for, um, for the meager offering that we offer you of faith, God, would you increase our faith? Would you increase our courage? Would you, would you help us to see the way you see people? Would you give us eyes? Would you give us courage? Would you give us opportunity? Would you... Would you grow your kingdom through us? And, and Lord, would you, would you give us the blessing of, of participating with, with your work? Lord, I thank you that we have a seat at this table. That because of Christ and Christ alone, undeserving wretches like us, our sons and daughters of the king, that we belong to our father never to be extracted from his hand. So we receive these things as not only your grace unto us, but also of your call and invitation to be dispensers of this grace to others. Please, Father, do it with us, in us, to the praise of your glory, in Christ our Savior. Amen. If you belong to Jesus, this is your meal. So come forward, receive the body and the blood of Christ for you.